Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anna Lindner, and today we will be talking to Dr. Sarah Quesada about her book, um... Dr. Quesada is an assistant professor in the Department of Romance Studies at Duke University, and she studies the intersections of Atlantic world studies, African diaspora studies, and world literature. Her forthcoming book, The African Heritage of Latinx and Caribbean Literature, which we'll be discussing today, examines the engagement of the most widely read Latinx and Latin American authors of the last 50 years with Francophone Anglo, Lusophone, and African writers in historiography to identify the African-derived causes of a Latin excision from Africa. Dr. Quesada, thanks so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. um, I loved reading your book. It was a great kind of overview of those African roots that do often get left off when we talk about the Caribbean and Latin America. And before we get into the book itself, I wanted to talk briefly about you. Um, If you want to add anything about where you grew up, school you went to, um, how this book came to be, what inspired you, just so we have some background information. Yeah, happy to. Um... There are different versions of this answer. I guess it depends, uh, you know, the further reasons about, you know, how I came to writing this book. Um, I think that the the personal side of it was that I grew up um, in Mexico. My father is a Mexican anthropologist. And so from a very early age, I um, was very conscious that to be, he was a, an anthropologist that also specialized in pre-Columbian civilizations. And from a very early age, I came to understand that to be what, to be Mexican, regardless of race, meant to trace a heritage to both indigenous and Spanish roots, at least from what from the places that we would visit on his excursions, right? Um, the colonial and the indigenous roots of of you know Mexicanity, and um, and never is you know never is one site of memory more prominent about this form of heritage or, or, or driving home this notion of our hybridity in Mexico than La Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Tlatelolco, right? Where, um, you know, the three cultures that meld together in this memorial site is this idea that we are Iberian or Spanish, whatever that means, you know, that's complicated. Indigenous, again, whatever that means, and that those two conform what is to be a mestizo, Right. But nowhere in that triangulation is it ever mentioned um, that there's this African referent, right? That the African referent is absent, really, in that triangulation. Despite the fact that since 1518, Mexico through asientos, or what was then Mex- what was what was what is today Mexico rather, um, through asientos imported hundreds and thousands of uh, enslaved peoples from Africa and established of prominent plantocracy that by the 17th century, there was the, the black population by far um, 
it, the black population was much uh, more significant than the white population there. But it's not necessarily a story, a historical, uh, you know, point that is mentioned in, you know, in historical accounts in Mexico or culturally. It's not something that we remember in these spatial memory sites, and it's certainly not something that's contained in Mexican literary history. So um, I think that I was very drawn to Caribbean literature because of its the ways in which it's much more... Um, I would say, not not obvious, but much more determinante. You know, like it's much more focused on uh, bringing home or or, or uh, uh, underlining, you know, the importance and the impact of the plantocracy in its literature. And I thought that um, to compare one form of literature the, to the other uh, would would make it clearer for me how to um, unveil this these hidden histories. Um, in Mexican literature, which is part of my actually my second project now, um, but yeah, the Caribbean was sort of the key to unlock these ways in which uh, the African reference is absent. Um, and then on top of that, I spent a lot of time uh, in French Guyana. I was there for uh, almost a year um, as a um, in assistant de langue, as the as the French department educational department calls it. Um, and I was in high schools in a high school there in Cayenne, and uh, and I was just so yeah, so just. Uh, and impressed by the ability of my students to be able to uh, wrestle with the, not wrestle, but sort of uh, be able to inhabit different identities all simultaneously. Um, so a notion of the Caribbean that I was, I've always been very drawn to um, because it really goes beyond this, this notion of hybridity. Right. Um, but yeah, so I think that those would have been the roots of, of this project. Right. Um in more personal terms. Um, yeah. Great. Um, and that question of hybridity is so fascinating. And your job, your book does such a good job of tracing that. Um, and to start getting at that, one of the first things you mentioned is the UNESCO slave route um, where tourists are invited to visit the sites of the slave trade and this is in certain places, um, certain countries in Africa, et cetera. And I was wondering if you could walk us through this as a neoliberal and capitalist phenomenon that's happening now, you know, currently, um, kind of in our mo present moment of trying to account for and wrestle with the realities of slavery. Um, and talking about that in relation to your guiding praxis which is visiting text while reading sites, um, as you say. Yeah. So um, when I was in grad school, um, I came across a novel that I was very drawn to. Um, I was reading it in uh, Ivan Yarbrough Bejarano's uh, wonderful seminar. I mean, it's just, it was such a great seminar. I was actually auditing it, and I was I regretted that I didn't take it for credit. But anyways, um, I read this novel by Cuban-American Nacho Bejas uh, and the title of it is Ruins, and I ended up, of course, writing about it for the book. Um, it's this beautiful novel. If people haven't read it, they they really must. It's a it's a must. It's it's a it's a, such a complicated and uh, comp such complex novel that is set during one of our only novels set in Cuba. Um, it's set during the quote unquote special period, the 1990s, the devastating uh, you know economic depression that Cuba goes through. Um, summer of 1992 when um right after the the soviet union collapses and the united states tightens tightens its embargo um and uh, at that moment um cubans decide to flee uh in mass in balsas right rafts um and hand, you know just made by their own you know their own in any way that they can um and uh and, and try to make it to to the united states so um and this is a novel about a character. The main protagonist chooses to stay, and uh, but in choosing to stay, he metaphorically, symbolically, imaginatively also travels, and he actually ends up traveling to an imagined Africa, what I term in the book an, an African safari. And uh, and it's really a novel that, in the end, at least for me, it does various. The novel does various things. I mean, like I said, it's very complex. Um, but one of the one of the 
at the root of this novel, at least for me, one of the things that it anchors is this notion that Latinidad has gone so far to commodify the imaginary of Africa that we no longer can see it in its particularity. And it does this through using UNESCO slave sites and very prominent ones. Um, if, for example, Gore in, uh, in, in Senegal, the Maison des Esclaves or the House of Slaves um, that we find on the island off of Dakar um, in Senegal. And then there's this other one, Badagri, Nigeria, that is the one that perhaps shows up the most in the novel. And it's in the novel really insists on this, on this term, Badagri, on and on. And so, um, of course, doing a little bit of research, I found out a little bit more about this UNESCO slave route, which I had heard of before because I had read it in uh, City of Hartman's Lose Your Mother. This brilliant, um, you know, um, well, I know what you would call it. It's just so many things, manifesto, memoir, critical work on, you know, heritage tourism, etc. Um, and I term it different things in the book, too. Uh, but but. Uh, I wanted, so I was very intrigued by this this notion that somebody like, you know, Cuban American Nacho Bejas, who's of course not of African ancestry or doesn't have any, you know, she's, she's not of African extraction, uh, but she but she does very much care about this notion of memory. I mean, you could argue that most of her novels um, are really um, really explore the different balances of memory and memorialization, and in this one particular case, she does. She does these observations about how Africanist particularity only hinges upon this memory site that we find in Africa, these really prominent ones. And so it made me think, well, you know, because I previously I'd actually um, done um, field work in the, at these sites. And what I found to be true there is that there was a lot of fiction that was told at these sites. So this is what brought me into this um, this 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 theoretical apparatus, right, that if a uh, fiction like Acho Bejas' novel Ruins used physical sites of memory to contest this notion of a lost Africa and try to build a bridge. In what ways would these in turn physical memorials use fic- fiction to the same means? Right. And so there you have this mutually constituting apparatus, this textual memorials and physical memorials that um, encompass an opportunity, to re, an opportunity to revisit uh, this literature that I call a Latin African literature. Um, and in many ways, it's not hybrid. It's not about hybridity at all. Actually, this this um, this book is really more about um, how to visualize again Africa as an archive, Africa as an actual space that one can revisit, reclaim the archive, and understand through their own point of view in the ways that in which you know Black Atlantic studies have thought of Africa teleologically, right, as an imaginary rather than again like an African African archive to be probed. So. Um, and I find that that's very much something that Acho Bejas' novel Ruins does. For example, you know, it, it insists that that we do away with all these essentialized ways, these exotified ways or uh, tropicalized ways in which we view um, Africanness, but by extension, Blackness. Yeah, and, you know, I kind of earlier said, yeah, hybridity, which is in some ways how... African contributions to the Caribbean, both in terms of people's genetics and also culturally and lots of other ways, gets reduced, right? Um, The idea of mestizaje as being the solution, and now people are really, scholars are really pushing back against that and seeing how that is a problem. And you you do talk about that, um, and that's really important to note. Um, And going off of what you just said about anti-blackness, I think your book does a really good job of addressing anti-blackness in its very complex and multiple forms. (laughs) Um, And you talk about, you know, African heritage along with colonialism, imperialism in Latin America, Caribbean Western countries, and then also even in African contexts. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how the United States and other countries' imperialism, but mostly United States imperialism, has led these very famous, well-known Caribbean authors 
who you focus on and Latin American authors to, quote, render Africa fearful, commodify it, obliterate its history, or distort it in each of the case studies that you examine? Yeah, I mean, so each one of those, you know, I don't know what you would call them, items, paradigms, moments are, uh, constitute the four chapters of the book, right? Um, In Juno Diaz, I talk about um, how um, anti-Black discourses that you can read, or more specifically anti-Haitian discourses in the Dominican and Dominican diaspora uh, discourse have, um, have its, have some of its roots, of course, not all of it, uh, but, but can trace roots back to anti-Black uh, discourses in um, in Benin, the cradle of uh, well, of course, what was former Dalme, but the cradle of Bodun or Voodoo, as we call it now. Um, you know, and so and there's some there's something to be said about these discourses uh, produced in Africa, sorry, within Africa about Africans that becomes distorted, right, in the archive. And so I, I make a so I make those those connections there. And the, and that of course that historical marker has very little to do with the U.S. Um, in that in that instance, perhaps the, where the U.S. imperialism is most relevant um, is in the second chapter. Um, tied to the third. And the second and third chapter speak to each other because they're both about the Angolan inter- Cuban intervention in Angola, in which the United States was involved um, uh, somewhat um, uh, indirectly, um, although albeit directly <laughs> through the CIA in its machinations. Um, but um, but what interests me there is that, well, second chapter is, I've already discussed a little bit on Achiobejas. Um, Achiobejas is um, critiquing in the novel in some ways the fact that Cubans blame the imaginary of Africa for the special period rather than placing blame on, say, the United States, right, and its imperialism, um, the embargo, um, et cetera. And, uh, and so Africa emerges as sort of this quote unquote curse in the novel where the, even the own protagonist who dreams about going back to Africa all the time calls it such. He says, you know, I wonder, I I wonder if um, all the plagues or the famines is the curse for having once sold their own sons and daughters. And he's alluding obviously to the slave trade. And the, the implication here of course, is that African, the African elite were also implicit complicit, excuse me, in the, uh, in this um, colonial uh, trade, right, and uh, in this genocide, but um, so again, it's it's sort of begging to think about the picture of the Atlantic holistically, right, and think about once again Africa in its particularity uh, as 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 having some some agency in this memory, and and coming to terms with uh, with a referent that for so long that for Latinos has been co- totally absent, and that really comes off to roost in Garcia Marquez, which is the second chapter, and it's connected to the, to the sorry, the third chapter, which is connected to the second, because Garcia Marquez also wrote about Angola, uh, even though uh, that referent has totally disappeared and has become obliterated. And that's why that chapter is, is titled uh, such, you know, obliteration. Um, and what's obliterated is the very marked uh, Latin Africa that Garcia Marquez has always, um, time after time, been espousing and been uh, dedicated him, dedicating his life to, really. Um, arguably not in his fiction necessarily, because, of course, the criticism would be, well, if Ang- Angola was so important to him, then why did he ever write a novel about Angola? And I get that. But what is also very clear is that critics have never been very interested in uh, his uh, journalism on Angola. Despite the and there's no critical edition on those particular writings, um, it or the only it's probably perhaps arguably the one of the few or only um, pieces that don't have a critical edition, and um, Angola becomes the source of of anxiety for Garcia Marquez. He says as much in interviews. He says that since his infancy, he didn't have interview. He didn't have interviews. He didn't have. Uh, um, um, nightmares like he did. Uh, you know, until he went to Angola. And another key item here is that Garcia Marquez is unable to finish Chronicle of a Death Foretold, the novel that he sold most copies of uh, at the time of publication, um, or the novel that sold most copies at the time of publication. Um, He was unable to finish it until he returned from Angola. It took him 30 years to write, 
and he goes to Angola, returns, and then is able to uh, to finalize that novel, giving it a very particular spin and including um, a slave ship of Senegalese slaves that actually he claims, at least in the novel, in my reading of it, actually names Bahia de las Animas, which is one of the most prominent ports of entry of the slave trade um, in, uh, in the Caribbean and uh, in one of the most important ports in, in Cartagena. Um, it's named after the shipwreck of Senegalese uh, slaves, but yet it's memorialized with a, with a statue of Christopher Columbus, right? And so this, these are sort of the, the, the sort of um, un, unveiled critiques that Garcia Marquez does of, of this Atlantic history, and we're able to unlock them through paying particular attention to his Angolan experiences, right, um, and his writing on that. Um, so those, so that speaks to, so where, uh, so there's, yeah, the commodity, so the Africa rendered fearful, commodified, obliterated. And then the last chapter is, um, on distortion. Um, and, um, and I, I get, and that one sort of and does dialogue with Juno Diaz because there's also distortion happening there that renders Africa fearful. But in the case of, uh, this last chapter, which is on Rodolfo Anaya and Tomás Rivera, um, this is a, a more so a, perhaps a chapter that might also surprise just as much as the Garcia Marquez chapter surprises because we don't expect uh, to find um, these African traces in these authors. Garcia Marquez perhaps a little bit more because he's Caribbean, although people would say, well, Angola, what does Angola have to do with Garcia Marquez, right? Well, which is unfortunate. And uh, But then in the case of Rodolfo Naya and Tomás Rivera, I mean, these are Chicano authors that are usually thought and read as having no um, affinity to the Caribbean and much less Africa, right? But the way that I enter into that space of, of the sort of the, the African reference in Anaya is through the plantocracy in the Southwest. And with Tomar Rivera is frankly finding a very surprising poem in which he alludes to uh, the 19th century scramble for the Congo. Um, uh, you know, in which it just appears in a poem, right? And so, and then he, of course, he, he there's an interview too that, that better explains the background um, and the reasoning why he um, conjures Henry Stanley, this genocidal figure in the Congo, and also the person he rescued, abolitionist um, David Livingston. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that at all answered your question. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, but the imperialism is most, oh, imperialism in the US. Imperialism is mostly felt in the second and third chapters because, um, especially with Garcia Marquez, Garcia Marquez's journalism with regards to Angola is defiantly anti imperialist um, and uh, uses choice words to speak of the United States and its rampant uh, imperialist efforts to um, essentially uh, overthrow uh, socialist or, you know, left-leaning governments that have been sovereign and that have been placed and and have succeeded uh, during uh, the Cold War era. And, um, And you can tell um, that there are traces of impending doom and um, and I don't know melancholia, right, um, in these writings about the U.S. Um, and I think, and I, and I also have a, some a, a part in the book that talks about the time that Garcia Marquez was in New York and saw what the United States was doing with the with the Cubans that were sent out to. Um, the, the Cuban um, exiliados, right, in the United States that are sent uh, to attack, um, you know, Cuban, uh, the, 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 you know, during the Bahia de los Cochinos, the attack, the failed um, Bay of Pigs attack. He witnesses that in that era, um, and, you know, in, in, in the flesh, and also gets all these threats when he's working for Prensa Latina uh, in New York City and decides to then leave and, you know, is, is really fears for his life um, within the space of the U.S. So so all of that is is uh, is is part and parcel of this, uh, you know, the this obliteration, this uh, this repression of the African roots of uh, that are present in some of our most endeared writers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, that that piece is missing. Um so clearly because at least for me you know I've this is my field I've I've started studying all of this a few years ago and a lot of these either people or uh, media objects or works are familiar to me or these historical events but the way that you're putting them in conversation with each other is just so so powerful and you talk you talk about this in your book as part of your method you know the order in which and the kind of just juxtaposition of all of those events and people and works and reactions to um and it's just it's very excellent it's very very compelling um especially you know when i'm reading that poem that opens chapter four that you kind of touched on and then the, the, the Stanley's role, and then how is he ending up here and the, the history behind that? It's, it's just so fascinating. Um, I guess kind of going off of that, um, when you kind of think about the theoretical, and you talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but you, when you talk about the theoretical kind of um, – like the arc of theorizing African descent and African heritage and, you know, every word that comes after African, African, you know, blood, quote unquote, which is, you know, an essentializing kind of way of understanding that. Um, what, where do you see, you know, even just in the last 10 years, where do you see kind of where people are landing on in terms of how do you, deal with this messy kind of race. Uh, you talk about, you know, your book does talk about the universalizing narratives that have been thrown around. Um, I guess, how do you kind of see that conversation in terms of um, the work that you did in this book, um, in terms of how people are trying to theorize race without essentializing it, but also creating these or not creating but drawing these transatlantic transnational transglobal trans um colonial i guess you could say too kind of threads between all of these places and people it's a very broad question <laughs> well no and, and a very provocative one x and i don't mean to be provocative here in my answer um but um you know i mean quite honestly this book came out from a, a restlessness that I had or, or an, uh, yeah, I guess a restlessness is a good word, um, in continuously seeing blackness in Latinidad being theorized without Africa in the same way that I was taken aback by, you know, Latinidad being theorized without Latin America, right? As, you know, the work of Josie Saldana and... Kristen Silva Cruz and Raul Coronado have all shown that it's it's very hard to theorize these notions of Latinidad without Latin America because it's, it's as if we're saying that, say, if you're doing border studies, migrants coming into the United States only start mattering once they enter the space of the U.S. So it's a problematic for me, and I realize that this will not be a book for everybody, um, to to think about, um, you know, these these spaces in the African continent that tell their own narratives to look towards in that direction will require 
a lot of work, less so, um, say, um, learning different languages. I mean, I, for one, I would wish that I would have hoped that I would have learned Wolof or Ngun because those were some of the languages that were spoken where I did field work. But, but as Josie Sardanya says, you know, uh, doing this comparative work is less about being fluent in these languages than being fluent in their histories, right? And understanding that to make universalizing statements about the conditions of race without diversifying your archive is going to be a problem. I mean, you're going to come up out with you're going to come up with claims that are universalizing and essentializing that at the moment in which these essential these 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 not essentializations but these statements about what we are as a field enter world literature they're going to become further essential essentialized and um and and flatten the truly heterogeneous nature um of our of our literature right and and, and really flatten the cosmopolitan assemblages um and and visions of these beautiful writers right so i think that for me uh, you know, somebody like Rodolfo Anaya, for me is, or Tomar Rivera, right, is, is, is my fellow Mexican writer, right? He's also my fellow American writer. But he also happens, they also happen to be these writers that make very powerful connections to African history in ways that we are so timid to approach, in part because we think that that is going to be hostile to our American studies field. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be hostile. We can actually work, we can actually learn to work comparatively and 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 transdisciplinarity narrowly um for my my experience was an enriching one i think i was very lucky to have this with was that i not only worked with comparatists when i was working on my degree but i was also working uh with uh, stanford's center for african studies which was mostly i mean i worked with a lot of historians for example it was actually a historian richard roberts um, and along with Elizabeth Boye, as I mentioned in the book, that sent me out to do f- this field work, you know, and they said at the time I was, um, um, I was, uh, I was, well, I was admitted as a student that was working mostly in the Caribbean, Latin America, but I really wanted to do this Latinx project. And I was lucky to find Jose David and work with him, um, it went well, the first years, years that I was at Stanford. And, uh, but then when I was, um, in the center for African studies, they said, you know, nobody working on Latinx and Latin America is doing anything with Africa, but you know, the actual archive of Africa, you know, and, uh, and this was shocking to me. Right. Um, so when I say that I go and I do field work in West Africa, I mean that I actually go out to do, you know, this field work um, to get a sense of what those narratives were, what those proverbs were, what those oral histories are told, how, and to get a sense of how truly people depend on these UNESCO slave routes um, to survive, you know, and 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 yes, they're neoliberal projects. Yes, they're a neo. They're part of a neoliberal mechanization. This mechanism that um, that they are crushed under, but they're also reappropriating it, making it their own spaces, just like the spaces of of Vodun um, in Benin. You know that that they have been Vodun, Vodun, and the zombie have been so distorted and and desecrated, <laughs> you know. And and in these spaces, they're actually valorized, right? And they're saying, no, oh, the history of Vodun. Let me tell you about it it's so wonderful it's so magical you know magical in a good way not in a sort of super in a superficial magical way that you know halloweenish way so um so that's what i would have to say about um these notions of you know interdisciplinarity and universalization um i i think that i hope that this my hope of course is that we can build alliances with underrepresented communities across the globe, not just within the U.S. And this is this does not dampen our solidarities with other multi-ethnic communities within the U.S. It only strengthens them because we begin to understand where some of our biases, uh, our anti-Black biases are coming from. And we're seeing a lot of these anti-Blackness discourses in the U.S. and recently, as we know, in L.A. And, you know, and, and but we don't be, and we say, oh, but these are these are biases coming from Latin America. Yes, but Latin America is this is a lot more complicated, you know, and it's it's coming from not only Iberian imperialism, but also 
French imperialism and Belgian imperialism, and it's coming from the ways in which these discourses were pronounced here and there and there in Africa. So it's it's a lot more complicated, and I think that, um, yeah, and so that's what I would have to say. I would encourage any student wanting to to be reflect to reflect on race construction to 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 do so in a way that um, you know they can think outside the box think in a little bit more of a holistic way and, and not be, you know, not be, um, you know, intimidated by the comparativism that that kind of, um, that kind of work would entail. Um, I think it, it can only strengthen uh, their, their project, but also um, help them arrive to a critical thinking that's a lot more nuanced and, um yeah, I will just stop there. <laughs> I think I said enough. No, that's that's an excellent answer. And I think just like with your book, you do such a good job of capturing all of those nuances in very particular moments, which is just so hard to do where you're zooming in and out and, and in and out just over and over again. But um, yeah, that's that's great. And the the same with as a historian who's very interested in race and kind of the formations of race. Um, I feel like the narrative that I got and probably you got and most people do get is, you know, the world was just the world and people were in their little spots. And then in the 60s, globalization happened. And it's it's just completely inaccurate because people have been moving <laughs> In, in one way to put it, for you know, millennia. And those that means that there is nothing fixed about identity or place ever in any case. And then it's going to necessarily require these very complex mappings. Um, <laughs> and I, I try to always start with that. You know, when you're trying to tell people about the Caribbean, you know, particularly North Americans, North U.S. white Americans in particular, who have no understanding of the Caribbean. Um, just trying to explain where everyone came from. And even that's going to be inaccurate because, you know, the colonial authorities were calling people uh, Lusumi or Ganga or Congo. And that's going to be completely inaccurate because that's where they were captured. And that's where the, the record says they were. Ca- it's just never going to be um accurate or enough but your work i when i was reading this i just was like this is pioneering this is this entry point into actual african archives and you know going beyond what a lot of us do and which i you know kind of guilty of too with my work is well africa really matters but we're focusing on you know the caribbean <laughs> um and then being able to go into that um, kind of thread is so, so important, so valuable. Um, and hopefully it'll move in that direction. <laughs> Thanks. I mean, part of it, I have to say that part of it, I, I was, it was helped. I was helped by the fact that I grew up speaking Spanish and English. So I already had those languages. And so then French was easier for me to pick up just because I already spoke Spanish. Right. And so as romance languages, they're easy. So those archives and then the ones in Portuguese, uh, Portuguese, I eventually picked up later, um, much less perfect, much less. I mean, it's just my, my Portuguese now is terrible, but, um, but I was able to access these archives because I had, you know, I had, I did have that linguistic fluency and I know that's not for everyone, but I, I do think that this notion of, of being of being excited about learning different languages is also part of what we need to move. That's the direction we I think that we need to move in uh, in the U.S. because we we have been sort of culturally isolated, despite the fact that the United States is is really a bilingual society, right? And Spanish was one of the first languages spoken in the U.S. Um, prior to even being U.S. It's it's just you know this notion that we are a monolingual lingual society is just wrong. And I think that 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 our disciplines have in some ways to to reflect that. So so we don't become this imperialist, you know, um, in these, you know, or so our disciplines don't become uh, linguistically imperialistic like that, right? I think that there is this notion that um, 
yeah, that that it that is harder to learn a language, and why should one spend time if one wants to like learn the theory? And 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 I understand all of that, but I also think that if there's a will, there's a way, and uh, and a lot of these archives could also be accessed with um, you know uh, with you know, in, in, in English language, there's lots of archives about, you know, West Africa in, in the English language as well. It's just that we see it as so geographically distanced that we don't, um, yeah, that we just find it to be inaccessible. But there's also something to say about funding. Of course, you know, you have to funding for these kinds of, and so if you are, um, you know, in a more underrepresented kind of program, or if the university doesn't value your program, your degree program as much as others, then you're competing for funds that are unavailable to you and things like that. So, so I, I get, I get all of that. Um, but, um, but yeah, so I but I did with the resources and the linguistic abilities that I had, I did the best I could. <laughs> no, it's that's great and that's really important. Um, yeah, I learned Spanish in undergrad and was okay at it for a while and then lost it and then was like, I'm writing my dissertation on Cuba. And then in some ways, me trying to relearn Spanish in six months um, became like this kind of very you know obviously very personal emotional intimate thing because language is all of those things and this kind of almost a form of praxis in itself is kind of how I've been viewing it where it's like I am trying to relearn this language that I halfway learned before and now we're going to um, turn that into a meditation and, and into a and also a practice in humility because <laughs> how how many people know multiple languages? Obviously, so many people across the world, and not a lot of you know, again, white U.S. Northern American based people. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a a good humbling tool, and also just so important. Um, and hopefully, that's the direction we'll continue to go in. Um, and kind of along with that, one of the questions that we can ask or are you know told to ask on this podcast is how is your book going to save the world um, and i kind of you know think it's this cheeky kind of oh well you know it's kind of said tug in cheek but um i want to kind of flip that question a little bit and talk about how you in your conclusion you critique UNESCO and others' kind of impulses to want to save the world and do diversity and do rep- not even really reparations, but the, the the easy kind of form of recognizing that slavery happened. While simultaneously, like you said, it's really important to note that people in a lot of countries, a lot of African countries, et cetera, are kind of reclaiming that to a degree. And making it their own and telling these stories. Um, and but then also it's happening where there's this Western kind of hegemony over the literature and that results in African epistemologies being overlooked. Um, and to summarize all of what we've been talking about, how does your book start the work of countering the impulse of let's save the world by you know, not being critical or not being fully, truly multilinguistic, multi-interdisciplinary, actually looking at the the realities of um, what happened with African influence in these countries and literatures. Um, and you're using that African, that Latin African access, as you say. Um what is your method of reading textual memorials and using the Latin Af- African axis kind of help you um, critique the uncritical, let's save the world impulses? <laughs> um, well, so first of all, obviously, I don't think that this book is going to, you know, save the world. I'm sure that that's the, the regular answer. Um, 
But I, I mean, I, I, I do hope, and, and this sort of reminds me of a conversation I had once with, uh, with David Scott, you know, on his like, you know, conscripts and all of these wonderful books in which, you know, people um, were, you know, misreading him and calling him an Afro-pessimist and, and these kinds of things. And, and, uh, and I, I, so I don't think that like him uh, or like, like this discussion that I was having in terms of, um, you know, what, what can, what can nostalgia do for us or what can, uh, you know, what can tragedy do for us? You know, those are some of the questions that, you know, here, obviously there's the, the tragedy here is this, this, the, the contact of the Americas and Africa during the slave trade, right? That, 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 that was the form of contact and that the form of recontact is through these UNESCO slave routes, right? It's sort of like a, um, a way of, of, um, but, but of course the, the problem is that these UNESCO slave routes are also being produced by neoliberal, um, you know, structures and that's a problem. And, um, so, so, so with all of this in mind, uh, I was, I was very much inspired by the work of Sarah Bruyette, um, UNESCO and the fate of the literary where, um, and then also an essay that she has on the African hustle in which she, she really nuances this conversation that I've been having in an article that I published uh, back in 20, 2015 about this, this notion of like African authenticity and what does that mean? You know, and, and for her in terms of the African literary world, you know, she, she comes, comes into this question with, you know, saying basically, uh, and I don't want to like, I don't want to, um, mischaracterize her work here. Um, but the notion that I hold on to in her work is, you know, when we think of African literature, we usually think of those that, again, are circulating widely in world literature, right? We think of those that have won these awards, people that have been granted these awards. These awards are usually financed by petrodollars, right? And and that is all a problem because rather than reading those that publish in their own language, like say, Bukavoy's Diop in Senegal that publishes in Wolof, right? We are reading um, these other authors that speak, uh, that are not only publishing in a language that we can understand and access, but are also writing through these conventions that are financed and, and, man and mediated by the West. And that's a problem too. So how can we get to this sort of this reference? This is how it goes back to what Achio Bejas is talking about in her novel. So how can we, so how can we actually, um, you know, rehabilitate um, a connection that is not with, with, you know, the other and the global South that is not f being filtered by these conventions in the West. And that's a very complicated question. Um, I think that there's no easy answer. I mean, again, I, I cited, um, you know, David Scott and Sarah Bruyette. I think that these scholars, uh, Nacho Sanchez Prado has this wonderful article on the lack of an African referent for Mexican literature. Right. So all of these, all of these, these, these scholars, I really admire, um, um, are 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 in the in the business of of opening our eyes to these to the ways in which literature itself and our discipline is complicit in um, furthering our you know south south solidarity if you will um, or or in the case of Latinos like their south the south in entre guillemets in, in a quote in, in quote in quotation marks right in um, the south but in the global north and our connection with the global south how do we how do we affect that kind of solidarity when we exist in a system that is by definition uh mediated and constructed by hegemonic forms and dictates right um and um so, and then again, UNESCO slave route is one of those, but I think that in ways, in, if we can reappropriate them in the same way that locals reappropriate the slave routes and the ways in which I appropriate, reappropriate these textual memorials, I think it puts us a step closer um, towards understanding uh, or reflecting what these notions of comparativism in the global South truly look like. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is an important point, trying to uh, acknowledge the realities, but then also acknowledge that the realities don't have to be the realities and balancing that is tricky. Um, and you briefly mentioned this at the beginning, but 
did this book lead into another book? Are you working on a current project? Or do you have ideas for using what you've done in this book to kind of move forward? <laughs> when I uh, published on social media that I, that I just published an article on my second project, a friend wrote me in um, alarm of saying, wait a second, <laughs> I hope you have a chance to enjoy your first book before you launch into this. And, uh, and yes, I mean, but of course, we're, we're our minds, I mean, I guess we're I'm, I admit, in my case, I, I think that the way in which I end this project um, sort of naturally launched me into the second project. And I end the book by uh, discussing how if, you know, Latinx Caribbean writers are, you know, constituting what we call a Latin Africa, sort of this desire to see um, the solidarity with not an imagined Africa, but a, but a sort of more concrete Africa, then um, how is it that African writers in turn are projecting these notions um, or, or how, are, how are they understanding the referent of Latin America and the Americas? Um, you know, more broadly construed. And, uh, and it turns out that writers like Sami Chak um, from, um, uh, from Togo or um, Tierno Monenembo from Guinea are writers that have been for some time, uh, not in one or two, but several uh, novels have been writing about um, Latin America, but are ways that are very not problematic, but they're, they are <laughs> complex to leave it vague like that. Um, and just that there's a sense that the, the leftist promise of 20th century Latin America has left Latin America bereft of its leftist, you know, promise. I don't know. It's, it's leftist, uh, sort of this, uh, this cosmopolitanism that could have been achieved has been left barren. Right. Um, and, um, and you see that in Fil de Mexico by Sami Chak, you see this in, uh, Le um, Cocuban Chantaminui about Cuba, actually, it's in French. Um, and then you also see this in some, um, uh, similarly, in some Mexican writers that I'm looking at, like Maria Luisa Puga. Um, you see this in Veronica Volco. Um, you, see, you see a little bit less of the pessimism, but because, because the pessimistic era had not yet happened. <laughs> so, um, so I'm interested in thinking about um, these, these connections. Um, I'm also interested in figuring out how we create structures that allow for us to access these novels because without translation into English, because neither of these novels are translated into a common language. But the problem is that they're also not translated into each other's languages. So Maria Lisa Puga is not translated into French for these Francophone authors that would otherwise be thinking about the spaces as she is and vice versa. So, you know, how do we, this, this is a problem. It's a comparative dilemma, right? And, uh, so that's those are the spaces that I'm moving into, um, and uh, and that obsess me. <laughs> well, that's a perfect kind of uh, transition from this book into a, another project that really relates, but is a completely different dimension. Um, so that's that's great. Looking forward to reading that hopefully eventually a few years. Um, <laughs> give you lots of time to write it, <laughs> um, but. Thank you so much for talking with us today about uh, your book. And it is um, being, it's coming out right now, uh, November 3rd. So uh, make sure to get a copy. And thank you so much again, Dr. Quesada, for coming on today. A pleasure, Anna. Thank you for having me. Of course. <laughs>